that hymn really beautifully captures, I think, the heart of the chapter that we're going to study here this morning in Isaiah chapter 9. You'll find it in your pew Bibles on page 735, 735, Isaiah chapter 59. This morning we are really returning to what we began to study last week, and by that I don't mean another sermon on the Sabbath day, but rather the beginning of chapter 58, which I think continues into chapter 59. You may remember that first verse of chapter 58, cry aloud, the Lord says to his prophet Isaiah, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. When he dealt with in chapter 58 was the great and really central problem of his people in those days, and that is the problem of a heartless worship as the people drew near to God with their lips and actions, but were far from him in their hearts. This continues to be, as we noted last week, a great and common problem in our own day that we can go through the outward motions, we can show up and we can pretend to be something that we're not while living our lives with hearts that are far from him. The Lord warned us as we studied last week that that, not ought to, that ought not to be as we consider the worship of our God. The Lord went on to give a corrective by reminding us that the heart engaged in worship to God will lead to a life that is engaged. The two are always connected inseparably. A heart that is truly engaged in the right worship of God will always lead to a life engaged in service to him and love to others. The one flows out of the other, which then led us, as we noted last week, to the remedy, which I really believe the end of chapter 58 is the, really the remedy, a proper approach to and a proper observance of the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, which the Lord has given to his people as a gift and accompanied its proper observance with great and precious promises and blessings that God has promised to his people. That is the remedy. That's what helps us week after week, day after day, to serve God from the heart as we enter into true biblical faithful worship each and every Lord's Day as the Lord gives us opportunity and strength uh, to be present in his presence, uh, worshiping him morning and evening on this his day, we receive the grace that we need, the corrective, if you will, that we need uh, to honor him with our whole lives. And so now we come to chapter 59. The Lord is continuing through his prophet to declare to his people their sins, but now he moves back, if you will, and speaks more broadly teaching us some very important and fundamental gospel truths, as we shall see. If you look at verse 1, you can see the issue that is immediately before us in chapter 59. Behold, the Lord's hand, the Lord says through Isaiah, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. The people were very accustomed to trying to manipulate God to do what they wanted him to do, much like they were used to trying to manipulate the idols that they were given to worship as well. And as we saw, they would do what God asked outwardly, but they kept their hearts far from him. The attitude was reflected last week in verse 3. Why have we fasted, they said, done this religious worship thing that you command, why have we fasted and you don't see it or recognize it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you don't take knowledge of it? We're doing our part, God. Why aren't you doing your part? That was the question they were really asking. And here's the way Isaiah responds. God has promised, as we saw at the end of last week, great blessings to his people. Why weren't they experiencing those blessings? Was it God's problem? Was it his fault? That's what the people thought, to which the Lord says the words in the beginning of this chapter. It's not as if the problem is to be found in God. 
His hand is not too short that it can't save. His ear is not dull of hearing that it can't hear his people. The problem is elsewhere. The problem is in the people. The problem is in you, and the problem is in me. The problem, in one word, is our sin. And that's really what this chapter is about, as well as the remedy here that God provides for us. Again, please stand. This is not in a long chapter, but I want you to stand before the reading of God's word. With that introduction, give your attention to these words. This is the word of the living God. Chapter 59, beginning in verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adders' eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace." Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none, for salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the, lying, from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has humbled, has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. All flesh is as the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, would you bless your word, the reading of it as we have heard it read, the preaching of it as we will hear it preached, that by this simple and yet profound means of grace, 
Your people would be built up and strengthened. You would call those whom you have chosen to faith in Jesus, that you would bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I don't think anyone disagrees with this statement that the book of Romans is the Apostle Paul's magnum opus. It's a phrase that means his most important and significant letter where he carefully, very carefully, and and Romans is an argument very carefully laid out from the beginning to the end where he carefully under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit lays out his argument defending and illuminating the gospel that he declares he is not ashamed of. For he knew it to be the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and to the Gentile. And it is, was, and remains the power of God. In the early part of his carefully and divinely crafted argument, when he wanted to show that all of mankind, Jew and Gentile alike, are under sin, Under its power and its curse, he turned, of course, to God's own revelation in the Old Testament. And he quoted in Romans chapter 3, where he is putting forth that argument that all mankind is under sin. He turned to many passages throughout the Old Testament, one of which is this very chapter, Isaiah 59, and the verses that are before us now. Specifically, in our text in Isaiah 59, it is verses 7 and 8, if you look at those. And listen as you look at those, how Paul refers to them in Romans 3. Their feet, he writes in Romans, are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known There is no fear of God before their eyes. Even that reference is uh, uh, taking some other passages from the Old Testament and just giving us a picture of the natural condition and state of mankind apart from God's mercy, apart from Christ. This chapter, in many ways, chapter 59, steps back from the specifics of false worship and gets to the underlying root of the issue. If the problem is not God's, then it must be ours. And that is exactly what Isaiah says in these verses. Much like the book of Romans, this chapter takes on what I referred to here as a gospel shape. It follows the pattern and outline of the gospel, both in its declaration, that is what we declare to the world, And in the experience, that is how we ourselves have come to be engaged with the gospel, to believe the gospel of his grace. I trust as we go through this together this morning, you'll better see what I mean by these things, that it takes on a gospel shape. Because we're going to look at it that way, in the shape of the gospel itself. There are three points or three sections to look at all of these verses under. Verses 1 through 8 is God's indictment. That's the the courtroom language again. We're back in the courtroom. Isaiah, remember, is a covenant prosecutor uh, for God. He is prosecuting the covenant against God's people for their sins. In verses 9 through 15, we find what I'm referring to as man's agreement with God's indictment. Guilty is charged. And then God's salvation in verses 16 through 21. The very uh, surprising and wonderful conclusion to this chapter, which really is very much part of Isaiah's um, whole focus throughout his book. God's provision for himself of a salvation that his people could not accomplish for themselves. And so we'll look at these, really not uh, verse by verse going through each one, but looking at the overall theme and focus of these verses. Look with me in verses 1 through 8 about God's indictment. An indictment is a statement that's made by a prosecutor, a judge, if you will, regarding charges that are brought before a person, an individual. Those charges are brought in the form of an indictment, Isaiah serving as the prosecutor again. And Isaiah serves really as a prosecutor. If you notice, the language of verses 1 through 8 are Isaiah speaking about a people, if you will, in the third person. 
Isaiah is not including himself there because he is serving as a prosecutor. And so he's not admitting himself that he's part of this, although he will, beginning in verse 9 and following, include himself. The language will change. Isaiah will speak on behalf of the people as they agree with God's indictment. But here he's a prosecutor. Here he's, if you will, pointing the finger, knowing full well that he is as guilty as the people, but he's serving a purpose here. And the purpose is outlined in its broadest sense in verse 2. It is your iniquities. The language familiar with other portions describing the various ways sins are referred to. It's your iniquities, your uncleanness because of your sin that have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. It's a great answer to a question people ask all the time. Why is it that it appears God isn't hearing me? Well, one of the answers, clearly, is if your sins have not been dealt with through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God will never hear you. You can only hear the prayers and the pleas of a people who have been reconciled to him through the blood of Christ, their sins forgiven, taken out of the way. Even for Christians, as we continue to live, our sins can get in the way again, if you will, if we persist in our sin and are not living in obedience to him. Isaiah is giving us a foundational principle. The problem that we have with God, who is the Holy One of Israel, is that we are not holy by nature. We are sinners by nature. And because of that, we exist in a place of separation from God that is part of our natural condition that we're born into because of original sin. Our union with Adam as our federal head, the one who sinned and we in him sinned and fell with him, puts us in this position of automatically being from birth separated from a holy God. It can't be any other way. And Isaiah highlights that in this broad statement of verse 2. This is the fundamental indictment. It's your sins that is and are the problem. It is not to be found in God that he can't do what he desires to do. It's your sins that are causing the problem. Now, verses 3 through 8 simply expand upon this. In very graphic and imaginative language directed by the Holy Spirit, he uses these images of speaking about their sins and the outworking of those sins. We know that the issue is our heart. The Bible is clear. All of these sins rise from a sinful heart. That's the problem. That's what needs to be transformed and changed and is by the grace of God in the gospel. But sin in the heart, the root of it being our hearts, gives evidence in our lives. And that's what verses 3 through 8 are really about. Again, go through them with me. Notice he identifies almost every uh, significant part of the human body. In verse 3, you have hands and fingers and lips and tongue. Later on, you have feet that walk in particular paths. All of this is a picture and an image of the pervasity of sin in our lives, what we call the total depravity of the nature of man. It doesn't mean, and we all know this, that we are not as bad as we possibly ever could be. Were that the case, I suspect most of us, if not all of us, would not even be sitting here. The problem is not that we're you know, not as bad as we possibly could be. The problem is that sin and our sin nature pervades us, our whole being, in such a way that every part of us, mind, being, will, intellect, everything is impacted by sin and causes that separation that Isaiah is speaking about here. So you have hands that are defiled with blood. The issue here is... The idea of murder, if you will, taking the lives of others in that extreme form, fingers of iniquity, lips that, that speak forth lies, a tongue that mutters wickedness. This pervasity of sin, this depravity which touches everything, continues to go forward and outward from our individual lives to impact and affect others, even the whole society in which we live. You wonder and ask why it is our world is the way it is. It's because it's filled with sinners. Why it is that there is no justice in our courts is because sinners run our courts. 
administration? It's because the impact of sin within the individual human being and in the heart is pervasive in their lives and outward into society itself. Everything is affected. Nothing remains untouched. And so no one enters suit justly. There are frivolous lawsuits, if you will. No one goes to the law, to the bar of justice, honestly. They have mixed and divided motives. They are not seeking righteousness. It continues on through this. Verse 5 talks about a, an interesting image that talks about the ways in which sinners, we by nature, apart from God's grace, are very intentional about our sin. We sow it wherever we go. That's the idea of, of eggs and the weaving of a spider's web. We're, we're sowing sin everywhere. We leave its impact everywhere we go. So it becomes a danger to others. Those who eat the eggs of the adder die, and the adder's eggs that are crushed, a viper is hatched and strikes forth and harms those who are near it. Our sin affects others in our lives and has an impact on everything around us. It is not that we're sewing, he says here, a spider's web so it can be worn for clothing or protection, but rather it is itself a work of iniquity and a deed of violence that is in our hands. There's an intentionality, a purpose in everything that we do to bring harm and hurt to others. The expansion presses out more and more Everywhere we look, their feet are quick to run into evil. The, the idea of verses 7 and 8 is that we, we walk in a path that is characterized by evil itself. We're swift and with delight to shed innocent blood. We have thoughts that are unending of iniquity and ways in which we can sin against God, sin against others, whether consciously or unconsciously. This is a, a picture of the nature of man in his total depravity, apart from the mercy and grace of God. We're thinking all day long, he says, all day long of iniquity and evil that we can be about. There's nothing in our wake but destruction and desolation. And everyone who happens to wander and walk and tread on the path that we walk as sinners will never know peace. These verses are hard to read as the verses in Romans 3 are hard to read. And our immediate response as we read them is, well, surely the Lord isn't thinking about me. He's got someone else in mind. And we can think of the someone else's that are out there in the world and in history that we can say, well, this is true of that person. The problem is that Isaiah is pointing something out here that is true of every single individual who has ever lived apart from Christ, who has ever been born united to Adam in his fallen nature and in sin. This description this is, a is coming from God. Who is God? He is the, according to Isaiah, he is the Holy One of Israel. Your standard in mind when we measure sin is not accurate. We measure sin by our own righteousness, by our own actions, by our own inclinations to what we perceive and say is good. God measures sin differently according to the standard of perfect righteousness and holiness. So what he sees are the motives of our hearts. What he sees are all the actions that flow out of our hearts that are filled with iniquity. This is the true picture of mankind apart from the grace of God. And this is the problem. Why God would not hear their prayers. Why God would not turn to them and help them and save them. The problem is inside of us. It's not outside of us. It's not as so many in the age in which we live say it's the fault of the stars. Or those people or my background or my history or any number of other things that people will commonly point to as reasons and excuses for why their lives are not what they had ever hoped they would be. Why they have problems and struggles. We always want to point, as is so common to every one of us, to something outside of ourselves. But Isaiah is telling us, and Paul uses this passage to remind us in the book of Romans that the problem is in us. It is us. It's our sin. Not just sin in general out there. Adam's fault. Bummer. Cast. 
No, sin inside of us, our sin. And the solution, as we shall see, is not something that will deal and come from, I should say, within us. It's not by self-improvement. It's not by meditation. It's not by just changing the way you think and being more positive than being negative. After all, there are churches today, some of the largest in our country, who will say that my telling you about your sin is not helping you. I disagree. I think it is helping you, and it should, if God is pleased to bless it. I think it's the height of not loving people to ignore sin and to hide it as if we're going to make people's lives more difficult or make them feel more guilty. Our problem is that we don't feel guilty enough or we don't see our sin, I should say, as clearly as God does. And this is how he sees it. And he's doing this for a reason. Because we can't ever see the hope and the goodness of God and the grace of God clearly unless we first see the nature of our sin. And so this is God's indictment, his indictment against the people to whom Isaiah is speaking and his indictment against you and I as we sit here this morning apart from Christ. This is how he sees us in our natural condition apart from Christ. Now, the second part of this larger section is verses 9 through 15. This is what I call man's agreement And I say it this way because it is a courtroom scene, very much like we've talked many times in Isaiah. The the scene is a courtroom. You know how this works. The prosecutor stands up before the judge and makes his charges. His indictment is read. The judge then turns to the defendant. That's us as we stand before the righteous judgment seat of God. And God says to us, how then do you plead, guilty or not guilty? Amen. (laughs) Amen. Isaiah here speaks in the language of verses 9 through 15. He speaks for himself and for the elect, those in whom God has worked already to see the reality of this, that indeed guilty as charged is our only plea. That is apart from all that God will do on the day of judgment when we say guilty as charged, but look to the one who has paid the price for us, as we'll see in a moment. But here in the courtroom scene, the only thing we can say and what Isaiah says as he speaks, I believe, for the elect here. This is not the language of the rebellious people who have no heart for God. This is the language of the awakened people by God's spirit who hear this indictment, who say, right, exactly right, guilty as charged. Now, verses 9 through 11 serve as a picture of the consequences of their sin and our sin as well. And the imagery here is also powerful and very descriptive. Isaiah acknowledges because of sin, this is the consequence. Therefore, justice indeed is far from us. Remember, even going to the court and bringing suit is all done with wicked motives. And Isaiah says, yes, justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. It's wonderful imagery and language of righteousness sort of following after the just. There is no righteousness following them. It can't overtake them. We hope for light, but what we see and behold is darkness. We look for brightness, but we walk in the gloom of our sin. We grope, as it were, for the wall like the blind. We grope as those who have no eyes. The blindness that sin brings into our lives, the ways in which it doesn't enable us to see life as God intended, as it really ought to be. The blindness of sin is is absolutely pervasive here. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor. We are like dead men. No life before those who walk about us. Verse 11, we all growl like bears. This imagery, this poetic language comes from other places as well. Job and other places, we growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation. But it is far, far from us. That's a way for Isaiah to say with the elect, guilty is charged. And the consequences are clear. They're all here. We, we agree with God's indictment. We see the evidence in our lives that everything God has accused us of is true. And we are like the blind and foolish groping about in the world, trying to find our way, but we can't. 
because we are burdened and overwhelmed by our sin. Verses 12 then through 15 serve as a confession. He agrees first with God's indictment, acknowledges the consequences of their sins as God had charged, and now confesses that indeed they are as God has charged. It is the elect here again who are doing this. We began our service with a prayer of confession that was from this verse, verse 12. Our transgressions are multiplied before you in light of God's holiness, his transcendent holiness. Our sins pile up. They become higher than our heads and we are threatened to be overwhelmed by them. Why? Because when in light of God's holiness, as we see ourselves, we see nothing but the the impact of sin in our lives. They're multiplied one after another. Our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us. We, we know, he says, we know our iniquities. The way God brings in his mercy, his people to acknowledge and to know the iniquities that he has charged us with, to see them for what they are, to know them deeply. And here they are, verse 13, transgressing and denying the Lord. Turning back, backsliding is the language here, turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt against God and against man, conceiving, that is within our heart and uttering from our lips, lying words. All of this says guilty is charged. Exactly what God said is exactly as it is, because God sees us. We're singing Psalm 139. Where can we go from his presence? Where can we flee? Does he not know us? Our hearts, our motivations, our thoughts are not all of them before they're even on our lips and in our minds before him. Does he not see them as in the light? We can't hide from him. And so God in his grace gives us the ability to agree with him and to say guilty is charged. Verse 14 and 15 builds on that breakdown of society. Justice is turned back. We see the evidence all around us. Truth is stumbled in the squares, language that's reminiscent of what Habakkuk says in his day, that justice falls down in the streets and other prophets as well. Uprightness can't answer or enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. That's an image that is really unpleasant. It's the righteous who seek to do what is right are then turned on and attacked by the unrighteous. They will have nothing around them that will remind them of God's justice and his righteousness. And so someone who seeks to walk in the right way will be in our day canceled. And that's what's happening in our day so often and so much the canceling of those who stand for righteousness, the silencing of those who speak for righteousness. It's all part of this familiar result and consequence of sin. Now, all of this leads, of course, to the wonderful news that we find in the latter part of this in verses 16 through 21, and that is God's salvation. I say it this way because it's really important for us to see this. This is God's salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. It is not of us. It can't come from us because of the indictment and the agreement that we've just reviewed. It can't come out of us by our works. None of our works remain untainted by our sins. There's nothing we can do to foster this, to do it. It has to come from outside of us. And what Isaiah tells us in this wonderful section is that it has that God has worked salvation. Look at verse 7, or actually verse uh, 8 or 15. The Lord saw it, that is all of this. He was displeased that there was no justice. And then he looked and he saw that there was no man, no one to stand in the gap and to intercede between the people, sinful as they were, and a holy God. Now, this is interesting. This idea of standing in the gap is reminding us of another prophet, Ezekiel, who himself was willing to stand in the gap, to stand between God and the people. He couldn't do it on his own, of course, but God enabled him to stand, if you will, between God and the people in that time. But he couldn't do this, which is why Isaiah says his own arm then, the Lord's own arm. And we see that language in chapter 51 
The arm of the Lord has brought him salvation. His righteousness upheld him. That is, the Lord was protected and and guided by the righteousness of the Lord. He lived a righteous life before the Father. The language here is reflective of our Savior, the suffering servant. That's really who's being referred to here, especially when we get to the latter part in verse 20, when a Redeemer comes out of and from and to Zion. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that we're talking about. It's a picture of our warrior king, the one who comes to deliver his people. He dresses himself in the in the outfit or in the, the clothes of a warrior as he puts on a breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation. That ought to sound familiar to you. It's what Paul calls us to put on as well after Christ and in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 6, to, to gird ourselves with the armor of God to withstand the attack of the enemy. As Jesus here is pictured as girding himself for the work of salvation, so he calls us as his followers to put on that armor, his armor, if you will, well tried, well tested, to stand in the face of the enemy in our day of conflict, trusting and resting in him. The picture is of his success and his victory, his power. But this is a picture of a warrior king who comes for his people and against his enemies. He puts on garments of vengeance as clothing and wraps himself in zeal as a cloak. He is coming to to judge his enemies. He's coming to destroy all of those who are opposed to his rule. He will repay, according to verse 18, wrath to his adversaries and repayment to his enemies. It will be rendered to the coastlands, to the west and to the east. All of the nations are in view, all of the earth. It will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. It is a picture, I think, in, in, in the sense in which we've seen in Isaiah, where you have this compression of the, the work of Christ We know he came in the fullness of time to accomplish the salvation which God gave him to accomplish. We know he ascended into heaven. There he remains until he returns again. But in Isaiah, we often see these images or these times compressed. And so I think what's in view here is his initial first coming as one who comes to redeem his people. A redeemer, verse 20, will come to Zion. A redeemer will come to those in Jacob who turn from their transgressions, acknowledge their sins, and turn to the Lord. He will come for them, for his people, for his elect. But it also has a view, I think, ultimately of his second coming and the promise that he will come against his enemies to repay them for all that they have done. And as for me, this section ends. As for me, the Lord here speaking through Isaiah This is my covenant. I will give you my spirit, which is the mark of the new covenant, the spirit poured out upon his people. And I will give you my word, word and spirit. And neither will depart from you or the mouth of your children or your children's children. God is a covenant making and keeping God from this time forth and forevermore. It's a wonderful promise that God has given that he will deliver, he will rescue, he will bring salvation for his people. This really is the hope for the hopeless. This is the hope for the hopeless. You think about hope, it is uniquely Christian. The world, I believe, doesn't understand and can't understand what hope truly is, biblically. For the world, it's I hope, fingers crossed, not really sure. But for the Christian, it is a hope that is settled. The Bible says these three remain faith and hope and love. They are unique marks, biblically speaking, of the Christian. And for the Christian, hope thrives in the soil of hopelessness. What do I mean by that? I mean, the message of the gospel initially places the one who hears the word of God of the gospel in a place of hopelessness with respect to their own ability to do anything to change their condition. 
That's the hopelessness that's in view in the Bible. That God intentionally, by indicting us as he does, brings us into a place of hopelessness. Nowhere to turn. We wander about as the blind in this dark and broken world. It's there that hope thrives and hope comes. It's in the midst of that hopelessness, the soil of that hopelessness. Faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for and the conviction of things that are not seen. Faith is not grasping at something that's uncertain. It is laying hold of something that is sure and steadfast and certain. That's what hope is. And that's the picture that Isaiah 59 gives to us. It is the hope of Christ in the midst of our sin and brokenness that God himself alone and apart from us and without us has worked for us. So that's Isaiah 59. Paul turned to it when he wanted to prove his point, among other places, that we are lost and dead in sin. Three things then as we close out this morning that we should remember. This story, this indictment, agreement, and then the revelation of what God has done, his salvation, is the gospel that we proclaim. And by we, I mean this church, the session, its pastors. When we stand up week after week, this is the gospel we proclaim. With Paul, we say we are not ashamed of it. Though it bring people to a place of hopelessness and helplessness, we are not ashamed of the gospel because it's the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. It is our aim intentionally as we preach God's word week after week to remind you of the place of hopelessness that you are in apart from Christ so that we can uh, remove any sense that you may have that by your own efforts, by your own goodness, by your own works, by your own ingenuity, by your own whatever, you can do something to change the condition that God's indictment pronounces against you. This is what the gospel does. We proclaim God's indictment upon all men in order that some by his grace might come to see themselves as Isaiah, and speaking for the elect, did in these verses, as God sees them apart from Christ, in order that they might come to know the truth. It's how we began the service. And you were dead, we told you. You were dead together with us in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you also once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, God's wrath resting upon you just like the rest of mankind. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you and I, if you belong to Christ, have been saved. By amazing grace, you have been saved. This is not only the gospel that we do and will always proclaim, God help us, in this pulpit and in this church, and that you ought to proclaim to all that you know, but secondly, it is the gospel as we have come to experience it ourselves. Is this not our experience if you are a believer this morning? Did not God in his mercy, after he brought you to that place of hopelessness and enabled you to understand your sin and your need, did he not come to you in mercy and reveal to you the answer which was not in you or of you? but of his own hand, his own arm, his own salvation that he had worked? Is this not what we have experienced when God brought the indictment against us and we said to him in our hearts, by his mercy alone, guilty as charged? 
That's what we did. We agreed with God. I love the language of Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on Romans. In that section of chapter 3, he puts it this way, and I think this is so pointed and so helpful for us to hear. He says, let me put it plainly, he wrote. If you do not accept the description of yourself, this description of yourself apart from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, then there is no need to argue about it. You are just not a Christian. If you resent all of this, you are not a Christian. You are not yet convinced and convicted of sin, and you are not a believer in Christ, though you may have thought that you were. If you in any way object to this, this indictment that God has brought, you are automatically putting yourself outside the kingdom of God and of the Christian faith. This description of man in sin is the simple and horrible truth. That is what sin has brought to us. Thank God that there is a way out of it, out of the hopelessness of that condition. And Paul gives voice to it in Romans 7. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The writer of that opening hymn, John Newton, understood. And when he wrote that hymn, which I think in many ways has been cheapened in our own day, sung by so many in so many occasions. But when we sing it as Christians, I hope when you sang it this morning, it wasn't just yet another singing of amazing grace, devoid of its context. He understood what a great sinner he was and what a great savior he served. Amazing grace, he said, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Who can write that except one who agrees with the indictment that God brought? I once was lost, wandering about, but now am found, given eyes. I was blind, but now I see. And then finally, you have to agree with the indictment. You have to agree with God if we are to be followers of Christ. But what's left to us then is to rest, to rest in the hope that is ours in Christ. This is a salvation that God has accomplished. It is finished, Jesus said. There's nothing more to do. The invitation, as we saw in Isaiah 55, is to all who would hear. When he invited people to come and eat what satisfies and to drink what fills up and satisfies, he was inviting them to this banquet, the banquet that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 6 tells us when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge from the wrath of God might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. And we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Notice, it's not, I wish it were so, I wish it were so, fingers crossed, hope to God. It is so, it is finished, and it serves as an anchor for our souls behind the veil in heaven itself where Christ is the hope is that God himself has done it all in Christ. It's not of us. We can't do it. It's not of our righteousness. We have none. It's not of our works. They're tainted by evil. It can never be. It is only and always the salvation of God. And he has done it for us in Christ. He is the victor and the champion. As we close, I thought of this week, and sometimes I'll warn you that sometimes... I think of illustrations, and I'm thinking, boy, I'm not sure this is of the Lord, but this really stayed with me all week, so I'm going to share it. Be good for the children to know that when I was little, I watched cartoons. Children, you probably don't know that, but I did. I watched a lot of cartoons. I have a lot of cartoon themes in my mind. Not a good thing, taking up space. There was a cartoon during my childhood that became very popular, and it had a catchy little theme song the kind that would uh, be sung by the kids as they played and pretended to be these mighty warriors and heroes. Walt Disney, by that time, growing up as I did in those days, had already convinced the whole world that animals could speak and could essentially be human. That has overtaken the world today. Every animal speaks now. 
in every cartoon, in every movie. It was just commonplace when I was growing up. And some of these animals, of course, became mighty heroes. Tolkien, of course, picked up on this, or I should say Lewis picked up on this, this idea of animals speaking, becoming heroes. But here for your, who are like me and the age that I am, are the lyrics to that great theme song. Mr. Trouble never hangs around when he hears this mighty sound. Here I come to save the day. That means that Mighty Mouse is on the way. Yes, sir, when there is a wrong to right, Mighty Mouse will join the fight. We know that when there's danger, we'll never despair because we know that when there's danger, he is there. On the land and on the sea and in the air, here I come to save the day. That means Mighty Mouse is on the way. Now, when I was a child sitting in front of a TV, the intent was that I would absolutely suspend all logic and reason. I was not supposed to ask how it could be that a mouse dressed in tights and a cape could possibly do anything, let alone save the day. We were supposed to enter the silliness of it and leave rational thinking behind and imagine such a world where a mouse could rescue the hopeless who were in great danger. It was, I know, a very silly, silly story. But kids, I did enjoy, and you should watch it. It's on YouTube. You can watch a little bit of Mighty Mouse. But you know, it's not really the story that's silly. It's the characters. It's making a mouse a hero. But it does reflect a story that is eternal. The silly part is that the mouse can be expected to save anyone. The reality is that we all need to be saved. That's the true part of it. And that's what Isaiah 59 is all about. We need salvation. We need to be rescued. We need to be rescued by a mighty hero. You heard read in the New Testament reading from Revelation 19. I won't read it again, but that's the rescue. That's the one who comes now out of Zion to rescue his people. They're hopeless. They're helpless. But he comes and he rescues them. And if it were not perhaps borderline blasphemous, I would say that when he comes, we might hear perhaps, here I come to save the day. Because he's the only one who could sing that, the only one who could save us in our hopelessness, the only one who by his grace has given us hope that is rooted and grounded in his promises. He will save the day. He has saved the day already for all of those who are in him. I pray this morning that you have agreed with God's indictment of you and that you have come to see his salvation in Christ. Let us pray. Father, he is indeed our champion, our mighty hero who will come and has already come to save the day. The one who himself will deliver us out of the bondage in which we still remain by the virtue of our sin still in us and in this world. Though we have been delivered from its power, we have been delivered in many ways from its extent in our lives. We feel it still and long for the deliverance that he alone brings. And so may you lift our eyes up even now as we look to the heavens, as we long for the appearance of our champion and our mighty king who will come to judge the earth and who will receive us unto himself Give us grace and perseverance, faith and hope. As we look to him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.